Here he restores Peter. He restores him to his relationship with his Savior. He restores him to his relationship with his brothers. And he restores him in faith and in truth. So we'll read this afternoon from the Gospel of John, John 21, and we'll read the first 19 verses. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and Two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, the son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Particular attention to question and answer two. Question and answer two of Lord's Day One. You can find that on page 518 of your book of praise. This question and answer obviously makes reference back to question and answer one with respect to the comfort that is described there. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. 
Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I had the privilege of teaching church history at the University of Western Ontario for a number of years. In one form or another, many of the courses that I taught dealt with the Reformation. Now, of course, when you teach people about Reformation history, that's always going to involve uh, taking time to talk about Martin Luther. And here's the thing about Martin Luther's story. We as Reformed believers, we're so familiar with that story that we have a tendency to forget that most people don't know that Luther existed at all. From my perspective then, it was always fascinating. It was fascinating to watch students learn about Luther's spiritual journey for the first time. And as the years passed, I began to, I began to see something of a pattern that emerged amongst my students in terms of the way that they responded to learning about Luther. In particular, there was a consistency about the way that they interpreted Martin Luther's spiritual struggles. First of all, my students had a tendency to find the intensity of Luther's spiritual wrestling to be rather odd and off-putting. They just couldn't understand. They, they couldn't understand why Luther was worried that maybe God would be angry with him. And beyond not understanding why Luther would be worried about God's anger in the first place, they were a bit weirded out by the depth and, and by the intensity and really by the expressiveness of Luther's struggles. Their solution in most cases was to come to the conclusion that in one form or another, Martin Luther must have been mentally ill. They decided that in an era before the advent of modern psychology and psychiatry, that Luther had, had likely progressed through life either as an undiagnosed schizophrenic, they decided that maybe he was bipolar, but the reality is most of them simply came to the conclusion that Luther must just have been clinically depressed. Now, I'll admit, for a very long time, I was rather baffled by this reaction to Luther. As the years passed, however, I finally identified what had caused my students to, to come to these conclusions about Luther's struggles. And the reason for their behavior, it was as simple as it was profound. I realized that my students had been driven to their conclusions not by what they thought of Luther, but by what they thought of themselves. And the key here is that they didn't think of themselves as being sinful. What was more shocking yet was the realization that they had no idea what sin was at all. Simply put, my students couldn't figure out why Luther was so bothered by sin because they didn't know that sin existed. What was really fascinating, however, was that even though they didn't have any awareness of what sin was, they did absolutely believe in the existence of evil. 
And I know that because the classes that I taught at university about Reformation history, they tended to be second year and third year classes, but I had also taught the majority of those students at a first year level. And when I taught them in first year, I taught them a class about totalitarian history. And in that class, we looked at, at regimes like Stalinist Russia and, and fascist Italy, and most particularly, Nazi Germany. And all of them, or at least almost all of them, every year, there was always that one kid who thought that Hitler had somehow or other just been misunderstood. I got nothing there, nothing. But there was always that one kid. But, but beyond that, all of them fundamentally, they believed that, that men like Hitler and, and Mussolini and Stalin, they believed that they were evil. And more than that, they believed that those men, and indeed all of the people who had supported them in building those regimes, that they deserved to face justice for what they'd done. But these same students, the very next year, were absolutely mystified by Luther's concern with sin. They couldn't figure it out why it mattered to him. And that's when I realized that the way that they were reacting to Luther, it had everything to do with how they saw themselves. You see, what I realized is this. When my students thought about evil, they thought about evil as being something that was external to themselves. They believed that evil was real, but they believed that it only existed in other people. More importantly, they understood evil, they understood it to be the result of some form of aberration. And so when they studied men like Hitler or Stalin or Mussolini, they came to the conclusion that the evil that those men exhibited, it must have been the result of some form of childhood trauma, or it was the result of some kind of abnormal brain physiology. As a result, when they were confronted with someone like Luther, who was concerned not just about the evil that existed out in the world, but who was concerned with the sin that lived in his own heart, they simply couldn't process that sort of experience. And the best that they could do was to conclude that Luther must have suffered from some form of mental illness. And what was remarkable was how strongly they held to these conclusions. One of my students actually wrote on an exam, if Martin Luther had had access to a good therapist, the Reformation would never have happened at all. And this had very real consequences. It had very real consequences for the way that they lived their lives. Because they didn't think that sin was real, and because they believed that evil was something external to themselves, it became really difficult to suggest to them that they needed a Savior. After all, what did they need to be saved from? And it made it, it made it even more difficult. In fact, it made it almost impossible to suggest to them. In fact, the very, the very notion offended them mightily that their lives didn't belong to them. And they were absolutely outraged by the suggestion that if God existed at all, that He might somehow or another hold them accountable for the way that they had lived. Ironically, however, while they insisted on the exclusive ownership of their own lives, they didn't seem at all clear what to do with them. 
And so I watched as many of my students simply existed rather than lived, and they moved through daily life without any real purpose or meaning or goal. Now, why do I tell you that story this afternoon? I tell you that story because it paints a very clear picture of what life really looks like when you lack the knowledge, when you lack the comfort, when you lack the security that here in Lord's Day 1, we confess belongs to those who believe in Jesus Christ. My hope is that this awareness, it will lead to a renewed enthusiasm for a consideration of question and answer too. I know, brothers and sisters, I know that these are words that you have heard hundreds, if not thousands of times before. But don't let your familiarity with these phrases, don't let it dull your sense of the immensity of their importance. The scriptural truths that are summarized here in this question and answer, they are the only source of genuine, enduring comfort that is available to us. A consciousness of our sin, the awareness of our need for a Savior, and the life-changing consequences of having been called into the service of Jesus Christ, this is the foundation. It's the foundation on which our hope stands and falls. If we don't have this, we don't have anything at all. So this afternoon, beloved, with the catechism of our guide, let's consider what such comfort actually looks like. And let's do so by considering the experiences of our dear brother Peter as a case study. Because it is exactly these scriptural truths, truths revealed to us here in John 21, As we learn about Peter's restoration, it is exactly these truths that the Catechism seeks to express to us here in this Lord's Day. And to that end, I have the privilege of proclaiming the Word of God to you today as we find it summarized and confessed in question and answer two of the Catechism. We do so under the following theme and heads. Our theme is knowledge that comforts. And we'll consider three things. First, the need to be convicted by our sin. Then the need to be confronted by our Savior, and finally, the need to be conscripted into His service. The Catechism teaches us that if we want to have knowledge that comforts, that is, knowledge that that provides us security and purpose in this life and in the life to come, then we must first know our sin and our misery. And there are several things that we want to take note of here as we reflect on what the Catechism teaches us. First of all, we have to take note of the fact that this is something that we need to know. The point here is that simply having an abstract awareness of the situation isn't going to cut it. It's not enough for us to acknowledge that in some kind of general way, we aren't what we should be. No, we have to know this in a real and a very significant way. Let me be 100% clear, brothers and sisters, if the comfort is going to be rock solid, then the conviction must also be rock solid. As part of this, note how the catechism also requires not just that I know, but that I know my sin and misery. Again, we've got to own this reality. It's personal. We can't uh, 
we can't really diminish the, the severity of our circumstances by, by pointing at others and sort of saying, well, you know, everybody's broken, everybody falls short, and, you know, everybody's a sinner. That's true, of course. But again, personal salvation from sin, it requires a personal conviction of sin. I have to look in the mirror and say, I am a sinner. I have fallen short of the standards of God's holiness, and I stand before Him convicted of having transgressed each and every one of His commandments, each and every one of His statutes. As a result, the debt that I owe Him personally is great. It isn't a question, brothers and sisters, of us just having fractured an occasional law or two here and there. No, every word Every thought, every deed, every desire of my heart has been wicked since the day of my birth. And that means when I, when I seek to know my sin, I have to know that this is a mountain of sin that we're talking about. And note here that the, the catechism, it doesn't just talk about our sin. The catechism also talks about our misery. Part of knowing your sin isn't just that you know that it's real and that you, you know that your sin exists. Part of knowing your sin is being miserable about it. After all, the reality is we all know people who understand that they're sinners. They know there's a God. They know that they are not living in faithfulness with that God. They know they've transgressed His law, but they've decided that they're okay with this situation. They're simply going to live how they want to live, they're going to live with no real care or concern, and they'll just simply deal with it later, and if God chooses to punish them, He chooses to punish them. We all know people who think like that, but brothers and sisters, that is just knowledge of sin, but it isn't knowledge that comforts. To have that kind of knowledge, we've got to be miserable about our circumstances. We've got to understand that that mountain of sin that I have to take personal ownership of, that mountain of sin, it stands between me and God. It separates us. It drives a wedge between us, and we've got to be grieved by the fact that we've been separated from our Lord. Now, I realize, I realize, I do, that nothing about this is pleasant. I realize that it's another Sunday afternoon, and as you sit in the pew, you're hearing more about sin and the mountain of your sin, and I understand that. It's, it's not a pleasant thing to hear. Nobody wants to make these kinds of admissions. It can, be, it can hurt to be confronted with the reality and the depths of our sin. It's a, it's a shameful thing. It's an embarrassing thing. But brothers and sisters, as we'll see, it is a necessary first step to acquiring knowledge that comforts. And that was certainly the case for our dear brother Peter. As I said, we don't like being confronted with the enormity of our sin. It's, it's painful and it's shameful. But that is exactly where the Apostle Peter found himself as he stood on the beach that morning. And it isn't hard to imagine how utterly mortified, how utterly heartbroken our brother must have felt when Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? How those words, how they must have pierced Peter's heart. How they must have hurt Peter. 
Did you notice as we were reading through that text, did you notice the way that Jesus addresses him? He calls him Simon, not Peter. Because at this moment and at this time, Peter's far from being a rock. And so Jesus addresses him as Simon. And how those words, how they must have humbled. Do you love me more than these? Do you remember what Peter had said earlier? Do you remember Peter's brash boast when he pointed at the other disciples and he said, Lord, those guys might leave you. They might run away. They might abandon you, Lord, but I won't. I'll never do that to you. I'll never depart from you. And then for Jesus to to ask him not once, but to ask him three times. The exact number of times that Peter had denied his Lord on the eve of his crucifixion. And the eyes that that gazed upon him from the courtyard that night as as the sound of the rooster's crow faded into the dawn, those same eyes now search Peter's heart as he stood on the beach that morning. And when we read this story, our first inclination might be to, to say how cruel. How cruel that is. Why would Jesus do that? Why would He, why would he take Peter and just rub his nose in the, in the filth of his shame? Why would, he, why would He bring up all that Peter had failed to do? But Jesus knew. He knew, beloved, that Peter, if he was to be fully and completely restored to fellowship with God, if he was to be fully and completely restored to fellowship with his brothers, then he needed to be convicted. Jesus knew that if Peter was not only to be loved by God, but if he was to love God in return, And indeed, if Peter was to be so filled with his love for God that he was prepared to acknowledge that the life he'd been given didn't belong to him, then what was going to be necessary was that Peter would know. That he would know in a full and in a very personal way the enormity of the debt that he owed to his Master. Do you know what? Peter knew it too. I don't know about you, but over the years as I've read this story in John 21 and I I hear the account of Peter throwing himself off the boat and into the ocean, I've I've always been a bit miffed by that behavior. They've been out all night working. They've been on the boat. They've been fishing. They caught nothing. They hear Jesus tell them to cast their net into the the sea on the other side. Suddenly the net is filled with massive fish, we're told. 153 large fish. It's such an enormous weight that all the men in that boat are straining to pull that net somehow into the boat so that the boat doesn't capsize. And what does Peter do? Puts on his cloak, jumps into the water, and swims to shore. It just seems like such a Peter thing to do when we can find ourselves looking at Peter's behavior saying, oh, seriously, Peter, are we doing this again? How can you be so self-centered? Don't you know that your buddies are back in the boat struggling with the net? Couldn't you have stayed to help? But brothers and sisters, I don't think that's what's happening here. No, what we're seeing here is a child of God whose knowledge of his own personal sinfulness has made him miserable. Think about it for a moment. Peter knows what he's done. That's why that night as he denied Jesus and Jesus looked at him across the courtyard, he fled into the darkness because Peter knew precisely what he'd done. 
He knew how hypocritical he'd been. He knew the betrayal that he had just committed. He knew how he had disappointed and harmed the Lord who had done nothing but love him. He knew exactly what he has done, and he is miserable about it. But here's the thing about Peter. He doesn't want to stay miserable. And he knows that Jesus is the only one who can do anything about it. Peter knew that he couldn't fix this situation himself. He knew that he couldn't undo what he'd done. He knew that he couldn't make sufficient recompense for all of his debt. But he also knew that Jesus could. And so he gets to Jesus as fast as he can. That's why Peter dives into the ocean. Because he sees Jesus standing on the shore. And he knows that Jesus is the only one who can restore him. Jesus is the only one who can do anything about his misery. And Peter can't wait a moment. He's got to get to that shore as fast as he can. And here's the thing about Peter. It's not just that he knew that he needed Jesus. Peter knew what would happen to him when he got to that beach. He knew when he got there that there would be a painful reckoning waiting for him on the shore, but he also knew that the only path to righteousness was right there in front of him. Peter knew that he wouldn't just be convicted of his sin, he knew that he'd be confronted by his Savior. And that leads us to our second point. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand what Peter understood. We need to understand what the catechism in line with Scripture confesses here in question and answer too, and that is the reality that if we aren't willing to know the reality of our sins, if we aren't willing to be miserable about that condition, then we're never really going to understand our need for a Savior. Simply put, failure to know our sin will result in failure to know Jesus Christ. That's what I saw in my students. That's what I saw in my students as they tried to come to grips with Luther. And I'm sure it's what you've seen in many of your neighbors and your co-workers as well. This is the first, and in some ways it is the greatest barrier to accepting the gospel message. You know, it's interesting in my experience, people are far more willing to admit that God exists They're far more willing to admit that He might have created the world in six 24-hour days. They're far more willing to admit that a virgin could give birth to a child. They're far more willing to admit all of those things than they're prepared to admit the fundamental sinfulness of their own hearts. But beloved, we need to be sure that we don't fall into that same trap ourselves. And avoiding that trap, it means constantly testing It means constantly searching our own hearts to ensure that we continue to make the good confession that I too am a weak and a miserable sinner. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, it isn't always the case that a refusal to acknowledge my sin will keep me from knowing Jesus at all, but it can certainly be the case that a refusal to acknowledge the reality of my sin is what's keeping me from knowing Him better. I'll speak for myself here. There have been times in my life when my spiritual growth seems to have plateaued. 
There have been times where there seems to be little, if any, real growth in my faith life. It isn't that at any point along the way I've ever denied my own sinfulness or that I've ever denied my need for Jesus, but at the same time, there wasn't much evidence of growth. There wasn't much evidence of intimacy in my walk with Him. And I've been forced to acknowledge that the reason for this situation had a lot to do with my diminished sense of a need for a Savior. And that's because I wasn't really wrestling with my sin. It's because there are times in our life where we we sort of lay down the fight, don't we? There are times in our life where we, we sort of make peace with our sin. There are times when we even build it into our lives. We make room for it. We make allowances for it. That happens, brothers and sisters, that happens when we're not faithfully in the Word. And and that was the case for me when I wasn't in the Word, then my conscience, it wasn't being pricked, it wasn't being accused the way that it needed to be. And over time, what happens is that your sense of misery begins to be replaced by a sense of complacency. Consequently, my sense of, of dependence on Jesus began to wane as well. Brothers and sisters, we've got to understand that knowing our sinfulness, it's not a one-time thing. No, knowing our sinfulness is an ongoing, it's a daily process. To be sure, it's, it's painful. This is an unpleasant process. I don't enjoy being reminded of all the ways that I've fallen short. One of the things I find most frustrating, and maybe some of you have this as well, is that the older I get the more I realize how sinful I was. The older I get, the more I look back on my life and I realize that things I I didn't think were particularly sinful in my 20s and into my 30s, I now look back and I think, oh man, my debt to Christ is so much bigger than I even thought it was. That's a painful reality. I don't enjoy it and I'm sure you don't enjoy it either. Nevertheless, this afternoon, I say to myself and I say to you, we must never fail to reckon on a daily basis with the reality of our sins. But as I say that, let me remind you about Peter. Let me remind you of Peter's experience. Remember how in the depth of his misery, he saw Jesus standing on the shore. And remember this too, brothers and sisters. Remember that it was Christ who had come looking for Peter and not the other way around. And remember that Jesus knew. Jesus knew better than anyone what Peter had done. He knew all about Peter's pride. He knew all about Peter's sense of self-reliance. He knew about Peter's betrayal. He knew about Peter's flight. Jesus even knew that Peter would be out fishing because he couldn't sit and stay put the way he'd been told to do. What had Jesus said? He said, wait, wait for this, you know, wait until it's time to go to Galilee. And Peter can't do that. Peter's had enough. He's out in a boat. And Jesus knows even this about Peter. Jesus knew all of this, yet, yet there he is standing on the shore. And the key thing we need to realize is that Jesus comes to Peter More importantly yet, Jesus comes for Peter. And He will do the same for every single person 
who knows their sins, who's miserable about them, and who knows that Jesus is the only one who is capable of doing anything about their misery. And I want to note one of the details here from this passage in John. It's a detail that I think is often overlooked, and it's a detail that when it is taken note of, I don't think is is given the importance that it's due. Did you notice that as Jesus stands on the shore, that he brings them breakfast? That's mind-blowing. It's absolutely mind-boggling. Stop and think for a moment about just who it is who is standing on that beach. This is the risen. This is the ascended. This is the victorious Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Son of God Himself. This is the One before whom all things have been put in subjection. It's a wonder that the sea didn't just retract. It's a wonder that the mountains didn't flatten themselves in terror beneath His feet. And yet this Almighty, this all-powerful God, He brings breakfast. That is an extraordinary sign of His care and His concern for His children. He hasn't just come to restore Peter spiritually. He hasn't just come to restore Peter officially to his office as an apostle. He's come to sustain the disciples in their physical weakness as well. He's a loving Savior. He's a Savior who's born their own flesh. And He knows that these guys have been out all night on the boat. He knows they've been working. He knows they've been laboring. And He knows that they're going to be hungry. And so He brings physical as well as spiritual nourishment. And He knew. He knew that they weren't just hungry in that moment. He understood that they were going to need strength to walk the road ahead of them as they lived out lives in service to Him. And that leads to our third point, conscripted into His service. Brothers and sisters, if you look at question and answer two, there's something of a logical, there's something of a a consequential flow to that question and answer. If we're truly aware of our sinfulness, then we'll be aware of the debt that we owe to God on account of that sinfulness. And the enormity of that debt, it will move us to realize that we're not capable of paying it back. And that in turn moves us to realize that we're going to need someone else to do it for us. We're going to need a Savior. But if we were to find such a Savior, if we were to find such a Savior, someone who is willing to to pay the debt that we owe to God for us, then that is going to have an impact not just on our immediate circumstances, it's going to shape the remainder of our lives as well. Because whoever that Savior was who was willing to pay our debt to the Lord, that Savior would justifiably be able to then lay hold of to claim ownership of our lives. If that Savior pays our debt for us, then our lives aren't going to be our own anymore. They belong to that Savior, and He would be able to determine how we would live. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what happens to Peter. Having been first convicted of his sin and misery, Having then been confronted by his Savior, Peter is now conscripted into the service of his Lord. And you can see that in the responses 
that Jesus gives to Peter's profession that he does indeed love the Lord. Look at what Jesus says to Peter. He says to him, feed my lambs. He says to him, tend my sheep. And he says to him, follow me. He's saying to Peter as he stood on that shore, I've bought and paid for you, Peter. I shed my blood on the cross to wipe away your sins, including your betrayal of me. And now I've come to collect. And I'm standing on this beach, not just so that you're confronted with your absolute need for me as a Savior. No, I'm standing on this beach because I have come to claim the life that I bought. You work for me now, Peter. From now on, I will determine how you live. I will determine where you go. And my will is that you no longer live for yourself, but that your life is lived in service to me, me and my people. You know, brothers and sisters, when I reflect back on my students at university, I think that's what really frightened them the most. If the need to acknowledge the sinfulness of their hearts made them angry, this is what shut down the conversation altogether. My life under my control. That is the creed of the unbeliever. But by the grace of God, we're able to make a better confession, aren't we? By the grace of God, we like Peter are able to say, Lord, despite all the weakness and shame that is part of my life, you know that I love you. And I'm not afraid to unreservedly give my life to you because I know that the Savior who loved me enough to suffer and die on the cross in order to pay for my debt to God, I know that He will always direct my life down paths that will lead to my good and to my salvation. And that may mean it may mean that just like Peter, there will come a time when we too have to stretch out our hands and someone will dress us. It may mean that at some point we have to stretch out our hands and someone will lead us where we do not want to go. But in those times, we must pray for the strength to rest on the same confession that got Peter his name in the first place. You are the Christ the Son of the living God, and in you is all my hope and my trust. Amen.